Well, thank you, Pastor Brad. And I am in the pre-retirement time slot, so we need to pray for that as well. (laughs) Randy knows what I'm talking about. And I appreciate all the compliments. When Pastor Baird called me and asked me if I would... I would consider doing this. I said, sure, let me, let me consider it and I'll call you back. <laughs> I didn't jump right into it. Most of the speaking that I do is to usually small groups, certainly not sermons, and I use PowerPoint or I'm describing something like a display board behind me. And I'm, I don't consider myself a great speaker, but I'm a pretty good describer. I can describe something. If you put something in my hand, put it in front of me, I can describe it. I could probably sell it to you. So that's where my experience is, and I, and I realized as I was considering pastor's offer that all the sermons I've done up to this afternoon are done in the shower to the body wash and the shampoo. And occasionally our little dog, Bibi, she'll wander through and just to see where I'm at, and then she'll wander back out. And I didn't get a lot of amens from that group. But I realized, and I was encouraged by the fact that night after night, the shampoo and the body wash are there for me. Right there. They're there for me. So I hope you would be there for me today. And in addition, my hope, my real hope and prayer would be that y'all would hear not my voice, but the voice of the Holy Spirit this afternoon. So can you do that for me? Thank you. On another good note, this may be the shortest sermon in Legacy Church history. So plenty of time for ministry afterward, Pastor Brad, right? (laughs) Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to continue here. Here we are in the sermon series, I Love God's Promises. And we have a sermon title today, The Promise of a New Life. should be up on the screen behind us. And today's main theme, and yes, we have a main theme. I consulted the sermon handbook, and it says you have to have a main theme, page one. So have a main theme. So we have a main theme. Today's main theme is Jesus gives us a second chance or the ability to start over. We have a couple other themes as well. Other theme number one, the Lord picks us up and gives us seconds and chance, excuse me, second chances in light. We all blow it and all means all. My lovely wife Beverly would tell you I've blown it a time or two in our marriage, probably at least two. We all blow it, but redemption means we get another chance to do it right. Other theme, two: Jesus doesn't let us wallow in our sins, but empowers us to prevail over our sins. Now, even apart from Christianity, the concept of personal redemption is popular in our culture. For example, we see it in movies. Has anyone here seen the old movie Rocky except Charlotte Lanning? who I know has not seen it, and I believe steadfastly refuses to see the movie Rocky, although I'm going to try to beat her over the head with it from now until eternity to, to see it. Let me see the old movie Rocky. Okay, there's Rocky. A down-and-out former boxer, now working as a leg breaker or enforcer for a loan shark, gets the chance of a lifetime to fight the heavyweight champion. Yo, Adrian. You all remember that? Or how about more recently, the movie Gladiator? Anybody see the movie Gladiator? All right, quite a few more. A former Roman army general, through a series of bad circumstances, becomes a slave. But then in the gladiatory arena, 
becomes more powerful than the emperor himself. My name is Gladiator. You remember that from the movie? So the concept of redemption is in our culture. It's in TV, it's in, of course, movies, it's in books, it's in sports, it's all over the place. And what about the ultimate redemptions, and I'm going to put an S on that, which are resurrection and the afterlife. Now these are also sought after in our culture, and I'd like to share with you a little Post and Courier newspaper article from March 21st. That was just a few weeks ago. And the title is, Jesus' burial shrine is restored in time for Easter. And it goes on to say, The tomb of Jesus has been resurrected to its former glory. Just in time for Easter, a Greek restoration team has completed a historic renovation of the Edicule, the shrine that tradition says houses the cave where Jesus was buried and rose to heaven. Now, I don't know if that's actually the place. I think only the Lord knows, and it's been speculated there are numerous places. But nevertheless... $4 million was spent on this restoration. Now, was that paid for by, say, the Southern Baptists, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, the Pentecostals? No, that was paid for by the widow of the founder of Atlantic Records. Now, I don't know, she might be a Christian. And here's another little article I got from the the Sunday Post and Courier in the Parade Magazine, if you all ever read that. And it says, Robert Redford is doing a Netflix movie, The Discovery, is the title. In The Discovery, Redford, 80 years old, plays a neuroscientist who has proven that there is an afterlife and has to deal with the unpredictable way the world responds as people rush to get there. Imagine that. That's the secular world. And maybe you all saw the movie Risen that came out within the last about year and a half. And I know it was promoted as a Christian movie, but it also had some secular actors. And so to me in that movie, and you see some of the movies that are promoted as Christian movies, there's sort of a melding and a meshing going on there. Very interesting, very fascinating to those of us that take a look at these things. So, redemption, or how can I come back from and overcome my stronghold, my sickness, my trauma, my addiction, my circumstances, my frustration, my anger is just as important to the unsaved world as it is to us. They're out there searching, folks. And by the way, up to now I've talked about personal redemption, but we know as a church that corporate redemption is very important as well. The church. We're seeking redemption for the Christian church. Our city, our country, our neighborhood, our family, and so forth. So, let's explore this promise from God, the promise of a new life. And that's today's title. And I've subtitled this, What does the scripture say about the process of this promise? And how did Jonah handle that? Now, there are plenty of examples in the Bible of redemption outside of Jonah, of course. In the New Testament, we have several. In the Old Testament, we have Joseph. Samson, David, the entire nation of Israel. In the New Testament, we have the woman of the well, the woman who committed adultery, and it's just not woman, ladies. We have the apostle Peter, famous example, the story of the prodigal son, etc. But before we take a look at Jonah, here are three important precepts that are true about true redemption. 
Precept number one, and I like that word, that's a pastor word. I'm going to say it a lot, precept, precept, precept. Precept number one, God is the source of life, redemption, and resurrection. John 11.25 says, I am the resurrection and the life. And I'm going to pick that up. That's in the middle of the quote. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Precept number two. God is the source of life, redemption, and resurrection now. Have you ever seen lawyer Arthur Anastopoulos, attorney lawyer commercials on television? He says, call me now. Now. So God is your source now. Help you remember that. John 10.10 The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come, that's Jesus speaking, that they may have life and they have it more abundantly. Precept number three. God is the source of your life plan no matter where on the timeline of life you are. And I found an obscure little verse. You might have heard of it. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I should have put this in the small print, but I made it big. When you receive and obey. We're going to call that R and O. Receive and obey. All those precepts are wonderful, precepts are great, but if we don't put them into practice, if we don't receive them, and we don't obey, we don't go with what the Lord wants us to do or asks us to do or suggests we do, <laughs> not very much value there. So if somebody calls you this week and they say, hey, how you doing? And they text you and say, what's, what's going on? What's happening? You say, well, I'm just taking a little R&O. And say, R&O, don't you mean R&O? R&R, and you're going to say, no, R&O, receive and obey. Then you can kind of use this as a, as a witnessing tool. Taking a little R and O. So, how did the process go with Jonah? Well, when we pick up the story of Jonah in the scripture, first of all, he's an established prophet. And it says so right in his business card. He's got his business card that says, Jonah, prophet of God, right there. And he keeps it in his coat pocket in the top front pocket. He gets personal words from God. Now, Jonah talks with God like you and I talk. And God says to Noah, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. So does Jonah arise? Yes, he does. Did he go, does he go to Nineveh? No, he does not go to Nineveh. He travels several miles overland to Joppa, that city on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Then he gets on a ship headed west to a city called Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is in the opposite direction of Nineveh, about as far as you could travel in those days because they didn't have airplanes. He gets on a ship. Tarshish is said to be on the west coast of Spain. And in that day, they never went west of the west coast of Spain because that was unexplored, that ocean. So it's like, Miss Andrea, if you were in Kansas, where Pastor Baird grew up, and the Lord told you, Andrea, go to New York City. And instead, you got on a plane and you went to L.A. And I don't mean Lower Allendale. I mean Los Angeles. So in fact, Jonah is so confident and so comfortable that he's escaped God. He decides to go down to the bottom of the ship and take a nap. This is a prophet. Got it on his business card. 
But this is when God, who certainly knows where Jonah is, and He knows where we all are, decides to give Jonah a wake-up call in the form of a massive storm. And you know the story. The captain and the crew of the ship are going crazy. They're terrorized by this storm. They're trying to look for reasons why this is happening. Finally realize, ah, that Jonah guy, he's running from something. There's something different about him. Let's go get him and see what's going on. So they go to the bottom of the ship. They pull his business card out of his jacket pocket and said, see, there it is, prophet of the living God. We know he's the reason. And they end up tossing him overboard into the open sea. So at this point, now y'all tell me, is running from God going well from Jonah? No, it's not. And this brings me to five important points about redemption. And I'm sorry, I did not put these on the slide. For those of you who are taking notes, you'll just have to listen close and and write fast. Point number one, in the process of redemption, God knows where you are. Where is Jonah now? He's treading water in the open ocean. If you were going to make a bucket list of the three or four worst places on the face of the earth you never want to be at any time ever, Treading water in the open ocean would be one of them. In the U.S. Navy, when I was in boot camp, in order to move on through boot camp, you had to be able to tread water in a swimming pool for five minutes. Anybody ever tread water for five minutes? Some of you? How about ten minutes? How about a half hour? How about several hours? How about several days? The open ocean, a very dangerous place, probably next to being on Mount Everest in a tank top and shorts, with no oxygen or being in the middle of the Sahara Desert with no umbrella, no water. Dangerous, terrible place to be, open ocean. So, here's Jonah in the open ocean. When things look really bad, they get worse, or they look worse. At this point, a huge fish swallows Jonah. Now, all my research indicated, and I know there's some argument among the educated pastor community, about whether it was a whale or whether it was a fish. And everything I looked at, New King James Version, Bible Dictionary, said fish. So I'm saying this was a whale shark, which is currently the largest biological fish out there swimming around. It's a whale shark. I'm going to call it a whale shark. You can, you can be a whale for you. You can call it a killer whale if you want or a blue whale. I don't care. But I'm going to say it was a fish. So point number two. If you choose to disobey... Things may look and become progressively worse. Shocker, huh? Sometimes God sponsors these events, and sometimes He allows this to happen to get your attention. Because at this moment, Jonah is... Next slide, please. Hello, slide person. There you go. Jonah is fish food at this moment. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, I'm no better than fish food now. I've had trauma, I've had wounds, I've had events happen in my life. Whatever it might be, I'm, I'm sick, I've got this condition or that thing going on. You may think you know better than fish food, but hang on, there's hope. So let's go back to our hero Jonah. He's in the belly of a fish like Gilligan's Island. No lights, no food, no air conditioning, no motor cars, not a single luxury. What does Jonah do at this point? What can he do? Well, he prays. Jonah, chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. So that brings me to point number three. What should we do when our disobedience or just the circumstances of life surround us like a giant fish? 
pray. We pray. Now, obviously the Lord doesn't want us to wait until we're going off a cliff, we're in a ditch, we're in dire straits, our butts in a sling, etc. He wants us to pray before that. But if it comes down to it, when you get in this situation, into this scenario, go ahead and pray. All is not lost. You can pray. That's what Jonah does. Now, at the same time Jonah's in the fish, I want you to picture something. There are two Israeli surf fishermen. They're standing on the beach of the Mediterranean. They're surf fishing. They've been fishing all day. Their names are Harold and Jacob. And Harold says to Jacob, Jake. Jake says, yeah. So what are you using for bait? Jake says, I'm using shrimp. What are you using, Harold? Harold says, I'm using squid. How much you caught with the, with the shrimp? He says, nothing. How much you caught? Nothing. So he says, look, we've been out here all day. We haven't caught anything. We're tired. What do you say we just do one more cast? See what happens. Now, for fishermen and Wally knows this, one more cast can mean up to 30 or 40 casts. Because we want to catch one more fish, right? We want to get the thrill of the catch. But for these guys, it was really important. It was more than just recreation. It was the fact that their family may have protein tonight or not. So they're going to make one more cast, but it's just not a laissez-faire. Eh, we'll just throw out one more time. We're just going to see what happens. For them, this is vital. This is important. So they rear back and they throw their baits out, the shrimp and the squid, and their layers are focused. They're looking out. They're waiting. Come on, fish. One more. One more. Come on. This is the time. This is it. This is what we do, Wally. Come on, you're out there. We talk to the fish, man. We're... We're crazed. We're like crazy people talking to the water. Come on, fish. We should be talking to the Lord. Come on, Lord, let the fish bite. Sometimes Wally does that, in fact. Lord, let these fish bite. So we can, you know, they're, they're laser focused. They're watching their lines and they're looking out past the point where the breakers are breaking on the beach. They're watching, they're watching, they're watching. And they look out and they see something. And it's kind of vertical like this. But they know it's not a sailboat. It's something else. It's about four feet tall and it's getting closer to them. And they keep watching because they're laser focused. Remember, it's the last cast of the day. And it gets bigger and bigger. And they notice that this thing that's sitting vertically like this is on top of a giant mound. And it gets closer to them. And they're still fascinated. They want to see what this thing is. And it's moving in. And it gets closer to the breakers. And they're transfixed. And they're looking. And finally this thing comes through the, the surf line. And it's got two fins sticking out on either side. And it's got two eyes. And it's got a, a mouth on it. And now they're not transfixed. They're scared. They're terrorized. Their feet are like lead. They can't move on the beach. And they're watching this thing come in. And this thing comes in. And right in front of them, it beaches itself. And that right before they're about to turn and run, the giant whale shark goes, Bleh! Jonah comes out like an Olympic gymnast, lands on his feet. But he's a little wobbly because he still has his sea legs. He doesn't have his land legs. And he staggers toward him a little bit because he's trying to walk. And there's seaweed hanging off of his head. And his hair and his beard and his mustache and his clothes are bleached pure white from the acids inside the whale shark's stomach. And he takes another step toward him. And just as they're about to turn and run in terror, he puts one arm up and says, Repent! Now what would you do? I'd repent! That's right. Dude comes out of a whale shark says, repent. That's serious stuff. So, in Jonah 2.10, the Lord speaks to the fish and Jonah gets vomited up on the beach like we just saw. Which brings me to our next point, 
but remember this, the Lord speak, spoke to Jonah and gave him a second chance in Jonah 3, 1 and 2. And this is how it starts. Point number four. When you get the second chance, obey. That's pretty simple. In Jonah 3, 3, Jonah responded positively to God. Of course, he's in the belly of fish. He doesn't really have a whole lot of choice. He arose and went to Nineveh. After he prayed, and when he prayed, you can read that prayer in Jonah. It's a very reverent prayer, I think, a very deep prayer of of humbling and repentance. So you can read that prayer. Point number five, God empowered Jonah. After all he'd been through, he'd been in the belly of the fish. The only thing he had to eat was his fellow fish food. He was able to walk to Nineveh in three days. Now, currently, the closest sea to the ancient city of Nineveh, and yes, it still exists, it's a city of ruins now, the current sea to Nineveh is 300 miles, it's the Caspian Sea. The Mediterranean, where I think it's likely that all this occurred, is over 400 miles from Nineveh. So, Jonah walks to Nineveh, walks to Nineveh. In three days' time. Anybody walked from one city to another ever in your life? How about from like Monk's Corner to Somerville? How long does that take? Jonah makes it from the, from the beach to Nineveh in three days. God empowered Jonah. He'd had no food. been the belly of a whale. White with seaweed hanging off of him. Three days. Amazing things happen. And of course, Jonah had, had his own issues. After this, and you can read about it at the end of the book of Jonah. He had, in fact, he had so many issues, God had chastised him. You can read about the, the tree and the worm and so forth. And God dealt with him again. But Jonah, in his moment, in his big moment, responded to God positively. Walked into the city of Nineveh after three days. Said, repent. And 120,000 people. It's probably at least as big as the city of Charleston downtown, wouldn't you all say? 120,000 people? 120,000 people repented and were saved. So my message is amazing things happen personally and corporately when we pray, repent, and obey. We will see the promise of a new life.